All right. Guys, why don't you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. Genesis 22, verse 20. get there. Right. So last week we ended with uh, Abraham and his son returning safely from really their crazy experience. Uh, It was a time where God was testing Abraham's faith through that potential sacrifice of his only beloved son, Isaac. We saw that that was really a picture of, that was a picture of going, representing Christ being sacrificed for our sins. And we saw that it was kind of an Old Testament example of that. You know, it was after that uh, very climatic ending that the rest of the chapter kind of ends like this in verse 20. It says, now after these things, Abraham was told, Milcah also had born sons to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, his brother Buzz, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Harrow, Pildash, Jelpath, Bethuel, and Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, Gamam, Tehash, and Makkah. Normally I skip those names, but I chose to entertain you today. Now, thinking about these things, you know, I wonder if... That kind of bothered Abraham a bit because you think about that situation. Now, hold on a second. I think, are you guys getting, uh, getting, are you hearing some echo? Someone's not muted. Okay. Let me see here. Okay. I see it. There we go. All right. That better? You guys hearing? Okay. All right. So I wonder if that bothered Abraham just a little bit, you know, because you think about, you know, here he had just kind of that amazing experience where God intervened, saved his son. He thought he was going to have to sacrifice. And we saw last week that the reason he was able to do that is because he had faith. He God had given that supernatural ability to believe that even if he sacrificed his only son, what was going to happen was the Lord was going to resurrect that child once again, even though we have no indication that that had happened in the Old Testament. We didn't hear about that at all. It made me think about, you know, times where maybe you've experienced something great. You know, I I know that there's been some things that have happened in my life that have been great experiences. You're kind of on that mountaintop experience. You know, here it was. I'm sure that Abraham was rejoicing in the fact that his son was saved and he didn't have to sacrifice and the Lord came through just like he knew he would do. And it must have been just one of those greatest moments in his life. Then right after that, someone comes up to him right afterwards and tells him, oh, by the way, did you hear that your brother has 12 sons? Isn't that great? You know, it was like right after this, you know, it was immediately after this whole thing ends, you have somebody that comes to Abraham and says, oh, by the way, have you heard your brother has 12 sons? You know, and it, it, It just made me think of all the times where, you know, we go through something great in life. And then immediately after that, it's almost like the enemy sends someone to spoil that. You know, they have received some sort of greater blessing, something that's happened in their life. And our flesh just hates that. There's something inside of us where 
You can be rejoicing and like, oh, thank you, Lord. You've done so many great things for me. I can't believe how wonderful this is. And then you hear about somebody's greater blessing and you're like, really? I have one son. He has 12. Why'd you have to tell me that? You know, I think I wonder how many times I've allowed something like that to steal the joy of my own blessings. You know, where God has truly blessed me. And then you get that news from somebody else. And, you know, and, and it's just like it steals some of that joy. And we let that happen sometimes. You know, I don't know if it bothered him, but it made me kind of put me in check that I need to be careful not to be that way myself. You know, when God has done something great, we need to rejoice when other people rejoice in the things that are happening. Uh, but we need to be careful because that's a common thing that happens in our life is right after we experience a blessing. The enemy may come in or maybe just through circumstances come in and try and steal some of that joy. You know, as we look at maybe what other people have or the things that have happened in their life compared to our own circumstances. Um, and these next verses, too, I, I don't want to spend too much time on those verses, but there's one thing that I need to make sure that you guys see there because it's going to be important here in a little bit. In verse 23, you know, it's interesting that Moses took the time to make sure that one of Abraham's brother's 12 sons that it's mentioned that he had a daughter named Rebecca, okay? And that's going to be an important ingredient for what we're going to be talking about here. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But there's a reason why that's in verse 23. There's a reason why the sons are mentioned and the brother sons and all that. But it's interesting that one of the daughters was mentioned. You know, but now let's move on to chapter 23. We're going to work, we're going to go through kind of warp speed now because there's a couple of chapters here that I think we can glean some things on, but we can cover quite a bit of ground here today. So hold on. You guys aren't even going to believe how fast we're going to go. We're going to cover like five verses today. Okay, now verse one, it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in that place, that's in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham got up from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hethites. I am an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Hethites replied to Abraham, Listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you this burial place for burying your dead. Then Abraham arose and bowed down to the Hethites, the people of the land. He said to them, if you are willing for me to bury my dead, listen to me and ask Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf to give me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me in your presence for the full price as burial property. Ephron was sitting among the Hethites. So in the hearing of all the, the Hethites who came to the gate of a city, Ephron, the Hethite, answered Abraham, No, my lord, listen to me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the sight of my people. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down to the people of the land and said to Ephron, In the hearing of the people of the land, Listen to me, if you please. Let, let me pay the price of the field. Accept it from me and let me bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham and said to him, My lord, listen to me. Land worth 400 shekel, shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Now here we see the death of Sarah, which was Abraham's beloved wife. It says that she lived 127 years. And when you think about it, her last 37 years were probably the greatest times of her life, the greatest joy that she ever had. Because that's when she became a mother. 
And that's when she had her only son, Isaac, that she had longed for. Remember, she longed for all those years to have her only, to have a child and to have a son. And she had it for the last 37 years of her life. She was blessed to see the blessing of, of, of his birth, that he actually was born. Then think about it. She got to witness the toddler years as he was bouncing around. She got to see the teenage years as he grew into those things. And even could get to witness to him becoming a man. Because at this point, he's about 37 years, you know, at this point. If there was anything that I bet she still longed for, you know, it probably was that she would see his his children being born, that she would maybe get to be a grandmother and get to, you know, help parent or help raise those grandchildren and see that happen, that blessing in his life. But, you know, even though that may seem kind of sad to us, you know, thinking that she missed out on all that, remember that Sarah is mentioned in the Hall of Faith of Hebrews chapter 11, where it's actually said this of her in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, it says, by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith. Although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. She may not have got to enjoy the grandchildren herself, but by faith, it says she saw them from a distance. She saw the promises from the distance, and she knew that that, that young boy that she was raising, that young man was going to have children of his own. And she believed the promise that God gave and she greeted and she welcomed it and she confessed that that was going to happen. So there was joy even in the, even though she didn't get to experience that herself because she took solace in the, in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That's where she got her joy. And I just think about, you know, I, as I'm getting older, you know, approaching 30 myself. Okay. It's not 30. Uh, why are some of you laughing? Okay. So it's not 30, but as I'm getting, as I'm getting older, and time is moving on now, you know, you start realizing that there's going to be some things in life that maybe you would like to do, but that probably are not going to happen. It's not going to take place. It's not going to work out maybe exactly as you had hoped. Maybe you dream that, you know, you had plans, you know, when you're younger, you had these plans of, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm going to accomplish. And you find yourself in a position of life where it's like, you know, chances of that really happening are really, really slim. Kind of like that Amazon they, they do thing they do on football now where they say the probability of that catch being made and stuff. Yours would be like 2% maybe. You know, chances of this happening, very, very slim. And you get to that point where, you know, maybe you feel a little bit discouraged with that because you're like, I don't know. You know, that's not how I wanted my life to end. That's not how I wanted things to be done. I, I really wanted to accomplish these things before that. The key to having peace in situations like that is that very last part of verse 13 of Hebrews 11 where it says, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. You know, we have to keep that in perspective. This is not our home. This is not... this. Even though we were created and we were born into this earth, it's not our final destination. This is a stop along the way. You know, God has it here, you know, to put in our heart eternity. It's, it's eternity that we're aiming for. 
And even though there may be some things that we'd like to see happen, and there may be some disappointments in life because we're not seeing some of those things happen, maybe the dream is dying a little bit where it's like, you know, I'm not sure it ever will happen. Maybe I will never get to experience that thing. Um, we can still hold on to the to the goodness of God, and we can still say, you know what, I understand that I'm a temporary resident on this earth, and I have eternity awaiting me, and eternity is what I was born for. You know, I was born for that in heaven, and we can take some, we can have some peace in that. We can have some joy in that, even though there's a little bit of disappointments for now. Because I'm sure, knowing, you know, my wife and and knowing my mom, and you know, and, and just thinking of Lynn, and just thinking of different people in my life who have taken great joy in maybe grandchildren and things like that. I know how important that must have been to Sarah, probably thinking about that. But again, she kept her eternal perspective, even though there was a little bit of, again, maybe disappointment on how things had turned out. But that didn't steal her joy from what she knew was going to happen in eternity. That didn't steal her joy for what she knew was going to happen after she left, what her son was going to experience. She held on to those promises. Now, because she had passed away, Abraham wanted her to have a proper burial place. Instead of her, instead of taking her back to her birthplace, which was really the common tradition of that day, he chose to break that tradition and bury her in the land that the Lord had promised them instead. You know, verses 3 through 14 really kind of show the way that the people bargained with one another at that time. You know, Warren Wearsby when especially in verse 14, where it says, Ephraim answered Abraham and said to him, my Lord, listen to me, land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? That was really a polite way of bargaining, saying, I really want 400 shekels for this piece of land is really what I want, but I'm not going to just come out and say it. It was a way that they would, in, in that area, that they would bargain with one another. And I started thinking about how even in our melting pot of of you know, our country, and we have so many different races, and, and we have so many different ethnicities, and we have so many people coming in from different areas of the world. And and it is true, culturally, people have different ways of bargaining. You know, I, I see that, you know, I, I came from Arizona, and uh, there was a real heavy uh, Hispanic population. And we were about 30 minutes above the border. And I speak a little bit of tires in Spanish, I don't speak much of anything else in Spanish, but I speak tires and wheels in Spanish. And it really gained. I had a large clientele of Hispanics that would come up from Mexico that wanted to deal with me specifically. And it was not just to make fun of my Spanish, although there was very comical times as I sent like one guy, he came in trying to get an alignment done and I sent him to Sears thinking he was, he was asking for something else. And it would, no, he was actually asking for shrimp. And, and I didn't know what that word meant. And I sent him to Sears looking for shrimp because I didn't know what he was saying. But you know, there's, there's things that, that happened in that because in that culture, what I found, especially in, in that area, is if I made an attempt to speak to them in their own language, they would often speak to me in English in return. And we would kind of fumble our way through the conversation. But there was a, there was a level of respect that occurred because of that, because I made an attempt to do it and they trusted me because they knew that was important to them. Um, that's why I, I, I tell my guys all the time when somebody comes in and, you know, they want to speak to somebody who speaks Spanish. I, I get that. There's a cultural thing where they feel more comfortable with the people that understand their language. And, and there's a cultural thing to it. Um, just like, you know, we have people who come in with a Russian background and they, they bargain differently with us. 
They have a different way of doing business. I have people that come in from Asia and they have a different way of bargaining. It, it's really weird. And it's not to say that everybody's that way. Uh, but even just, you know, common Americans, they have a different way of bargaining. Now it's like you match this price. I mean, this is their bag of bargaining. You know, it's just everybody has a different thing. And back then, you know, they had their way of bargaining. And he was just politely telling him that, yes, I want to sell you this property. And, and I want to save face and say that I'm willing to give it to you. But the real thing is I want to get paid for this property. And it's worth $400 or 400 shekels. But what's that among friends? That was him basically asking for that price. I love the fact that Abraham honored that cultural difference. He, he didn't, he didn't ridicule him. He didn't make him feel bad for doing business that way or whatever. He honored that cultural difference, you know, and, and again, that's kind of that mindset of, you know, we're, we're temporary on this earth and we're just passing through. And I think we have to be careful to understand the cultural differences among us and do our best, um, to really, again, just to, to honor that among other people and not to not to think poorly of that. You know, Abraham could have said, just tell me your price. What is it? You know, just give me, tell me what it is. Let's do it. No, he kind of went along with the game and he did it just like it was. And he ended up buying the property. Now that tomb, it's interesting. He bought that property. Not only would Sarah be buried there, but if you go on to read later on in, in Genesis, you'll see that eventually Abraham was buried there. Isaac, his son was buried there. Rebecca was buried there, Leah was buried there, and even Jacob was one day buried there as well. So that was a crowded tomb. It must have been a pretty large one because that was a lot of people buried in one tomb. Now this chapter ends with the details of that transaction among the witnesses. It says, Abraham agreed with Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had agreed to in the hearing of all the Hethites, 400 standard shekels of silver. So Ephron's field at uh, Machpelah near Mamre, the field with its cave and its trees anywhere within the boundaries of the field became Abraham's possession in the sight of all the Hethites who came to the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave of the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field with its cave passed from the Hethites to Abraham as a burial property. Now we go on to chapter 24. So I told you that was fast. Chapter 23 done. Chapter 24, it says, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. I really like that. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. That first verse really stood out to me because there are some things that happen in Abraham's life that were not necessarily good. You know, we've seen him make some pretty bad mistakes, right? Some things that have been consequential in his life, some things that have gone wrong. But it's interesting that from, from a godly perspective, the Lord had blessed him in everything. And it made me think about the fact that even though we make mistakes and sometimes we, you know, we have consequences in our life from the mistakes that we make, that the Lord, because we're his children, he still even allows those mistakes to be used as blessings in our life, even though there can be harsh consequences. You know, you talk to people who, I just read of someone, I don't know, there was somebody who was being executed uh, somewhere, and and he was giving a little bit of an interview. He's been in prison for murder or something. And, and he was talking about the fact how prison ended up saving his life, basically. And, and because of that, he got out of that situation. He recognizes what he had done is wrong. He deserved the punishment that he had gotten. But, you know, you could tell that he had, through that imprisonment, 
gained a relationship with the Lord. And, and you think about that. It's like, man, only a God like our God would allow somebody to do something as terrible as he did, take him to a place where he went through probably a good amount of suffering in that situation, uh, had all of his freedom taken away for the rest of his life. And again, I'm not saying that that wasn't deserving. That I'm sure it was very deserving. And even had his own life taken from him because of the consequences for the crimes that he made. And yet he came to the conclusion that it was God's goodness that God allowed those things to happen. And and I, just when I think of Abraham, who is now old, getting on in years, he has the perspective the Lord had blessed him in everything. And sometimes that takes some time to get to that place in life where we realize that even the difficulties and hardships that we face, that the Lord had blessed us in those things um, because he's good. And he can use a, even those things to be a blessing to us. It says in verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all that he owned, place your hand under my thigh and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose a woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. Now, in that culture, when you think about that, uh, the parents selected the spouse for their child. Uh, quite the opposite of what we do here today, right? Instead of falling in love with someone and then getting married, they got married first and then they learned to love each other over time. It wasn't based off of some, you know, being attracted to someone. It wasn't based off of, you know, just being overwhelmed by their kindness or their goodness and just loving them and just love gushing. You know, it wasn't a Hallmark movie by any means. Okay. In many cases, it was a prearranged marriage. It, it always was in that case. The father would get out and select who it was that, that his daughter was going to marry and and that was it. This is going to be your husband. And they would have to learn to love each other in those situations. Now, I can't help, you know, of thinking of what our society would be like today if we kept that model in our own culture. You know, being that I have a daughter that's getting that age, we're now, you know, we're thinking about, you know, when is that time going to happen when some young man comes to me and asks for my daughter in marriage? Um I'm kind of thinking about reverting back to this a little bit, just test it out a little bit, see what I think about it. She doesn't know it yet, but we're talking about it. Okay, but, you know, I just wonder, and I'm not saying that that was better, what they used to do. I, I'm not saying that that was a better way, because surely there were some horrible examples of those things happening. But I do wonder what our divorce rate would look like if 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 we had still that going. And the reason why I, I kind of started thinking about that is when you think about it, you know, our premise for, for marrying someone this day and age is based on really just a couple of things. Number one, an emotional decision. It's how you feel about somebody at the time. And I think about how our emotions deceive us sometimes, right? You know, we fall in love with someone. I mean, you think about all the years growing up and teenage years and young adult years and all those things. And you had some emotional 
you know, attachment to someone and you just thought, man, this is the guy, this is the girl. And then it ended up not being the case. Your heart got broken, whatever it was. And then years later, you're like, thank God I did not get married to that person. You know, you're grateful because emotionally you were a wreck and, and you weren't thinking correctly. Your heart was deceiving you. So that's the first thing. And the other thing is a lot of people just get married because they're physically attracted to that person. Well, you know, that's not enough typically to carry a marriage through the years, you know, so it, our divorce rate is so high now and you hear about it so often. I just wonder if if we have, were in a situation where we had to learn to love someone rather than be emotionally in love with someone, I wonder if the marriages would last longer. You know, if, if there would be less divorces because you'd have to learn to love that person. You know, that that was kind of ingrained that you understood that you may not feel like you're in love with that person. You may not feel like I'm attracted to that person for whatever the case may be or any of those things. But you just had to learn to find those things about them that you did love. You know, I don't I don't know if that would make any difference or all, but maybe in heaven we'll see. But Abraham knew that he was getting closer to death, you know, and he wanted to make sure that he did his part to set up Isaac for success. You know, he knew that Isaac would one day have his own children. He knew that was going to happen based solely on what the Lord had promised to him over and over and over. But he also knew that he wasn't, that the Lord wasn't just going to like rip a rib out of Isaac's chest and say, here's your wife. This is woman. You know, it wasn't going to happen that way. He was going to have to put some work in this to find this wife for his wife. So Abraham selected his most trusted servant one that he already trusted to manage really all of his affairs, all of his possessions. You think about that because Abraham was very, very rich at this point, had many possessions over the years, and this one man managed all of this for him. He commissioned him to take on this task on his behalf. Now, you talk about trust. I, I think about, number one, Abraham trusted this man to choose his future daughter-in-law for him. That That's already a lot of faith in there. But I think about Isaac. Can you imagine what he was thinking? He's like, you're sending him to choose my wife? I wonder he was thinking, what kind of taste does this guy have? You know what? What kind of woman does he like that thinks it's going to be good for me? I mean, talk about the faith it would take for somebody else to even choose your potential spouse. In doing so, Abraham promised and made his servant promise these three things to him. Number one was that he would not seek his wife from among the local Canaanite women. Number two, that he would choose a woman from one of his own relatives. And number three, and that he would not take Isaac back to Abraham's former home. They would not take him back there. That last stipulation was really a result of the servant really asking this question. Suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? And it seems like a really valid question. You know, I would ask that question. Like, what if I find someone and I go to them and make this offer and they don't want to come back with me? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to take your son back there himself? I mean, what what do you want me to do? I mean, just think about this. You know, He's going to go back to an area that they originally came from. He's going to say, hey, you, I think God wants you to marry this man which lives in this foreign area, and I want you to come with me right now. I mean, just think about that. I, You know, we look at that and we're like, there's just no way. You know, you don't know anything about this guy. You don't know anything about the man that he's referring to that 
he wants you to marry. I mean, that would take an incredible act of faith to go into something like that. So I'd say that was a very valid concern. But look how Abraham answered him. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this in verse 7. He says, The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. Listen to this. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Remember last week I explained to you how all the other testings and all the other trials that Abraham had faced up to that moment of offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice, that that was preparing him for that moment, that enormous act of faith that he would have to take in order to offer his son to be willing to do that. All of it led up to that, building up confidence and trust in the Lord through all the other things that he had already faced, all the other trials in life. Well, now at this point, Abraham has a pretty settled and very mature faith at this point in his life. I see that in what he says right there. I see it in the fact that, you know, he says, listen, first of all, my God has already been so faithful. You know, he said that over and over. He says, listen, my God took me from my father's house. He brought me to this to this new land. He promised me that he was going to give me all this land and he was going to give it to my offspring. He will be faithful again. He says, he will send his angel before you and you can take a wife from my son there. Somehow, Abraham knew, just like we talked about last week with supernatural faith. Supernatural faith is something that God gives you that you have supernatural confidence that something is going to, uh, it's going to occur. It's not something that you convince yourself of. It's not something that you try to make yourself believe. It's something that God instills to you from him. It's a gift that God gives to you for a specific purpose. That is biblical supernatural faith. Somehow God had put it in his heart that he was going to send an angel that was going to go before him and set things in order so that he would have success in this. But I love how he balances that. In verse 8, he says, If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. I love that balance. He says, I have the faith. God has given, has put it in my heart that an angel is going to go before and he's going to prepare the way so that you will find the right woman. I really believe that God, this is the time and the place that you're the person that God is calling to do this. I need you to go obediently and do this. God is going before you. He's going to prepare the way when you find the woman that he reveals. And he didn't tell him how he was going to do it. He just says, God's going to before go before you and do this. He says, when that happens, if that woman will not come back with you, you are free from this oath to me. You're free. That oath, that whole thing of sticking his hand under his thigh, you know, I'm grateful we don't have that anymore. Uh, you know, but the, back then basically what it was is, listen, if you break this promise after we make this oath with my hand under your thigh, may my future, the, my loins of my body, you know, the, the future descendants, may they come back and avenge you for what you've done. It was symbolic of those things. You're going to have to deal with the future generations if you, you know, if you, don't keep your promise to me. So that's what it was symbolic of. And he says, listen, if you do everything 
that God is showing you to do, if you go there in obedience, if you and the Lord shows you which woman it is that is supposed to be his wife and you in faith step out and do the thing that he's asking you to do. And if she chooses that she doesn't come with come back with you, you're not a failure. This is not your fault. You're free from the oath that you made because you did everything that depended on you. You obeyed the Lord in the things that he is asking you to do, and it's not going to be up to you to make it happen. You don't have to persuade her. You don't have to make her believe. You just have to be obedient to do your part. I see this as, you know, again, I love that example because I think so many times, you know, I, I get into situations where, you know, maybe somebody is is dying or somebody is sick and, you know, people are asking for prayer and, you know, I... I come to those situations now and and I understand that, you know, life is temporary unless the Lord returns. Um, and if the Lord doesn't return, we're all going to face death at one time or another. I, I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know what the circumstances are going to be for each of us when that day occurs. But I do know that every one of us will face that day. We will all have that. And I know that when someone gets news of being, you know, sick or terminally ill or whatever it is, you know, I, I, I have to be really careful because I'm sitting there. I'm like, listen, I, you know, it, and I often pray it this way, that it's my desire that you would heal this person, that you would take away this sickness or save their life. But on the other hand, you are sovereign, you're God. And, and I don't know what your plans are all the time. And I just commit this person to you, to your care. You know, if, uh, if we ask you to heal him, we know that you're capable of healing him or her. It's, it's not a question of your ability. But sometimes, I know that sometimes the Lord does not heal. I know that sometimes it's part of his plan that that somebody will face death and they will have to walk through that. And I have to be careful with that because, again, I, I don't want to seem like I don't care. Or I don't have faith or any of those things because there has been times, and I won't share, you know, I can think of one specific occurrence in my life where I knew for sure the Lord had made it very clear that he was going to heal this particular woman. And he did. Um, but But that's rare occasions where it's something like God has spoken something very, 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 very specifically to my heart that he's going to do that. I think that it's an example of when we, whenever the Lord is calling us to do something and he's given us the faith to believe and he's shown us that I'm going before you and I'm doing these things, our responsibility is to obey him and to do the things that God has called us to do. It is not our responsibility to make it come to pass. It's not our responsibility to convince someone else to do their part. Um, it's our responsibility to be faithful and do what we are called to do. And then we trust the Lord for whatever the result is. It also shows that the woman had free will as well. She had to make her own decision. It wasn't like the Lord was just going to go like caveman on her and like, you're going to marry this person. She still had her whole, she had to make a decision. The Lord was going to have to work in her heart just like he worked in his heart. And it and it just shows that balance that we have to be careful of, that we understand that, you know, even if God has called you to do something, and even if God has gone before you in that, you must still trust him for the success of that thing, the success or failure. And just like Abraham said, I mean, he had the wisdom to say, listen, if the plan falls apart and this doesn't happen, I'm not going to hold you in disregard for this. I'm not going to blame you for this. This isn't your fault. It isn't your failure. 
It's understanding that sometimes things don't work out the way that we wanted them to work out. Sometimes it just doesn't go as we had hoped. And we trust the Lord for those things. Now, I I also really see here another example which spoke to my heart. You know, I'm in a position as a pastor and and as a manager of a business. And, and sometimes I struggle in this next part here. Something the Lord spoke to my heart is, you know, Abraham entrusted his servant with a really great responsibility. That was a great responsibility that he entrusted him with. And that's really, that's an important part of a leader is being able to entrust other people with other important tasks. Um, you know, he, re- I love the fact that he reassured him of God's faithfulness and he sent him out on that amazing task. He says, listen, God has said this is going to happen. So he built up his faith and he equipped him with the promises. This is what God has spoken. He told them the Lord is going to send somebody before you, you know, the angel before you, and he'll do his part on there. Your responsibility is just to be obedient and do the thing that I'm asking you to do, which was no small thing because if somebody told me, hey, I want you to go into, you know, Portland and I want you to hang out at this place and when you when the Lord makes it clear what woman you know is supposed to marry my son I want you to go and tell her that she's supposed to marry my son and come back with you to Woodburn you know that would be a a really I don't know that'd be a challenging situation I would say that would be that would be something that I'd be a little intimidated by but he says just be faithful to do your part just be faithful to do your part and he delegated that responsibility to someone else because Abraham could have said, you know what? This is going to be my daughter-in-law. I'd kind of like to know who is going to be my daughter-in-law. I'm just going to go do this myself. This is an important thing. Besides, you know, the, the, the future generations depend on this. I mean, if we make a wrong decision here, this is going to blow God's plan. You know, we're supposed to have future descendants. And what if this is not a good woman, you know, for this particular thing? I mean, he could have totally micromanaged this whole situation. He could have said, I'll just do it myself. It's too important for anyone else to make this decision. He didn't. He delegated responsibility. And I want faith like that. You know, I, I want to be more like Abraham to where I can entrust others. I can trust others to carry out not just the menial tasks, not just the small things that, you know, in my mind, I'm like, ah, if they blow it, it's no big deal. I'll fix it. I want to be able to trust people to do the big stuff. The things that, that there's a lot riding on. There, it's important things that they need to do. I want to have that kind of trust in people because what I see in Abraham is Abraham had more faith in God than he did that person. He knew that his God was able to guide his his representative. He knew that all he had to do is trust God, not necessarily the abilities of that man. It was God that he was trusting in that situation and that God would guide them to success. You know, I've learned that, you know, my job is not necessarily to do everything myself, even the big consequential things in life. But rather, whether it's in business or in ministry, my responsibility is to equip others so that they have the faith and confidence in the Lord to do things themselves. See, They need to know that he will guide them to success if he is seeking their will or if they are seeking his will above their own desires, even above their own reasonings. You know, we um, let me mute this real quick here. We need to 
we need to trust the Lord just like we say we do. You know, we go into we go into things here and we say this verse, which is a very common verse, right? It says Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. We, we have that verse hanging on our fridge. You know, we have it on little coffee cups. We, we say that we want to do that. But it's really hard to trust the Lord in everything, isn't it? It's really hard to trust the Lord in, with all of our hearts. You know, you talked about this morning, Claire, that, you know, we, you've been walking with the Lord for 30 years, but it's still hard to trust the Lord in hard situations. And, you know, I was quiet, but in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I kind of feel the same way too. You know, I mean, we all do. There's none of us who don't feel that way. Every one of us, we end up in a situation where we want to take control of the situation, but we can't. We can't fix that situation. We can't micromanage the situation. It's something that the Lord has to take care of. I love the fact that he entrusted somebody else to do something really important. I love the fact that he equipped them through the promises and said, this is what God will do so that you can have success. I love the fact that he said, all I want you to do is be faithful in your part. I love the fact that he says, we're going to trust the Lord for the results. If this woman doesn't want to come you back, that's not your fault. You're not a failure in doing that. He told them that ahead of time. Didn't make him feel like he had to make this happen. He's like, listen, trust the Lord. If the Lord's in it, this is going to happen. And don't feel like a failure if it doesn't happen. And I love the fact that, you know, he says that in verse 8, if the woman, if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you're, you're free from this oath to me. He says, I'm not going to be upset with you. I'm not going to be angry with you if you don't succeed in this. What a relief that must have been for his servant. To know that if he did what he was supposed to do and the woman refused to come with him, it was not his fault. He could refer, he could return home and not feel like a failure. That's part of the equipping process that has to happen. Whether you're a mom with your kids or a dad with your kids or you're an employer, you're the boss and you got to train younger guys or gals how to do their job. That's an important thing to let them know that I'm entrusting you with a task. And I just want you to be faithful in what you're supposed to do. I want you to do your part right. But if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be angry with you. These are things that you're going to have to learn. There's things that you're going to have to go through. And sometimes it's not going to go exactly as planned. But I trust the Lord that he will take care of it and that you will learn from this experience. You know, that's the hard part of delegation. Trusting someone else to get something really important done for you, knowing that they might possibly fail, especially when you're the type of person that thinks, I'll just do it myself, because then if it does fail, at least I know I did everything that could be done. The problem with that is, how many blessings do we keep from others is if, if, if we let them go through that and they got to experience God's faithfulness themselves? How many blessings do we keep from someone else? Because we're always the type of person that says, I'm going to do it myself because I know it'll get done right. But if you never let somebody, if you never entrust somebody with responsibilities to do things, how are they ever going to learn about God's faithfulness themselves? How are they going to learn the lessons that you've learned? How many times have we suppressed spiritual maturity in someone else because they never had their faith tested? The only times you want to send them out to do something is when you're sure it's going to go perfect. Well, I'll let them do this because I know this is done, this is done, this is done, this is done. There's no possible way they could fail. Does that build their faith? Not at all. It builds their dependence on you. 
not necessarily on the Lord. Because you are trying to protect all the things from ever going wrong in their life. They never get to experience the things that Abraham had already experienced. Can you imagine the wealth of faith and knowledge that Abraham had gained over the years? All the difficulties that he faced, all the times his faith was tested, all the mistakes he made. Did he not make tremendous mistakes? And yet look where he's at now. Spiritually, he's showing an immense amount of maturity. He's saying, the Lord will go before you. I don't need to do this myself. It's a super huge decision that we're making here. But I trust you because you can do this. I'm going to, the Lord's going to go before you and send the angel before you. You just be obedient to do this part. If it fails, I'm not upset. I trust God. He understood that I trust God. And this man's faith was going to get built up because now he was going to have to trust God. And we'll see next week. You know, this was not a comfortable situation for him. He didn't have any, he didn't have like step one, do this. Step two, do this. Step three, do this. He's like, just go. The Lord will guide you. And you bring back a wife for my son. The rest of it, he didn't have the details. That left a lot of room for that man to grow and, and to learn about God's faithfulness. We're going to see next week, that man would learn something that day about God that is going to bring him so much joy for the rest of his life because he saw how faithful God was. And he got to experience it himself. We need to be careful as parents, as leaders, as you know, pastors, managers, whatever it is, whatever position we are, moms, dads, all of us. We need to be careful that we are not trying so hard to do everything ourselves, are trying so hard to make everything perfect for someone else so that they cannot fail, that we eliminate the chance for them to learn the Lord's faithfulness. Sometimes we interfere with spiritual maturity because we won't let people be tested. We won't let them grow. And we have to let them grow. There are some things we want people to do and we feel like it's the best thing for them, but maybe we're getting in the way because we're always doing it ourselves. And we're not allowing them to go through these processes. So today all I want you to think about is, how are you doing in spiritual delegation? How are you doing in that? Do you view your position in that relationship as, as someone who's supposed to help equip others so that they can learn to step out and trust the Lord themselves? Do you see yourself that way? Do you look at yourself when it's raising your kids or dealing with employees or whatever it is? Do you look at yourself and say, you know what? My responsibility is not to make this happen. My responsibility is to equip them so they will learn for themselves to trust the Lord. They need to learn to trust the Lord for themselves. And the only way they can do that is they have to have some room to figure this out. It can't be just everything completely laid out for them. And we have to start resisting the temptation to micromanage everything. Do it all ourselves. Just because we're the only ones we think is going to get it done right. We're interfering with growth. There's things that have to happen for people. And sometimes there has to be a risk of failure, isn't there? Sometimes there has to be a risk of failure. I think about when I was teaching all three of my kids how to cut the grass. You know, and I I, I like my grass cut a certain way. And I, I from a very young age, all three of them, I taught them all how to, you know, start the lawnmower and how to push it. 
And I remember everything within me watching them the first couple times cut the grass. And I just wanted like, stop, you're not doing straight lines. Just go this way, this way, then come back here, do this corner. You know, I wanted to like get in there and like make them do it over or, you know, fine, I'll just do it myself, you know, because you're going to do it wrong. You're going to mess it up, whatever. I had to let them make those mistakes. And it was painful for the first few times because I really wanted it done my way. Uh, my wife, you know, makes fun of me every Christmas because, you know, I'm at a point now where I can let somebody else decorate the Christmas tree. I've, I've moved up. I've matured in my faith because now it's like, you know, for years I wanted it done as I had a formula. It was like you put the important ornaments first and then you put the ones we don't care around to fill in the gaps. But the important ones have to be spread out. I see some of you are in agreement with that. Well, you're a sinner. OK, just like I was, because. I was so intent on it had to be look a certain way that I never allowed my kids to figure out how to do it themselves or for them just to have fun doing it. It was hard to learn that lesson because the first couple of years looking at that tree, I'm like, I just wanted to come in after everybody went to bed and fix it. <laughs> yeah. But it was just like I needed to let go. I needed to let them learn these things. And spiritually, it's no different. Sometimes we're just we're trying so hard to control the outcome of something that we don't give room for people to grow. We don't give room for them to experience what it's like for them to step out in faith, for their faith to be tested, for them to be in an uncomfortable situation and have to really trust the Lord, not just say they believe in God, but really have to trust the Lord. We have to be careful that we're not stunting spiritual growth by always doing it ourselves. We need to become spiritual delegators. We need to be able to let people fail sometimes. Let people, you know, get into uncomfortable situations because they need to grow. They need to mature just like you did. And you need to let them do it uh, without trying to fix it all the time. If you can't let go a little bit. The problem is not them. The problem's you. Just like the problem is me. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's that your faith has not reached that level yet. You haven't got to that place where you trust God enough that he will take care of the overall thing. See, Abraham was like, this was a huge major thing, but he's like, you know what? I trust God. He said, that I'm going to have many descendants and I have one son that they're going to come through. I trust God that he's going to keep that promise and make that happen. Even if I don't do it myself, you go and take care of this for me. Cause I know God is still sovereign and God will still accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish. That's, that's tremendous faith. When you don't have to do it yourself and you, and it's not just like you're just being lazy it's just that you finally got to the point where it's like you understand God is in control. And even if I can't control it myself, God is still in control. And even if it doesn't work out exactly the way I want it to, God is still in control. And to be able to have peace with that and to be able to back up, we're going to see how God works next week in this situation. Like I said, this was a radical thing for this, this man to experience. This is going to change his life, what he gets to experience. He's going to see God lead him in a way that he has never seen God move in his life. He's seen God move in Abraham's life, but now Abraham is passing that on to someone else. 
And that's what we need to be. We need to be equippers that pass on these things that we have learned from the Lord so that they can walk in those same things too. That's the kind of spiritual leadership that we all need to strive for. For our kids, for our loved ones, for people that come into our life that we're just trying to mentor and trying to help out, we need to look to be those kind of people that help equip them, but then let them go. Let them do what they're going to do. Let, let, them, let them fall down a couple times if that's what it is. But let the Lord lead them and guide them and build that faith up in them. And let's not interfere thinking that, you know, again, it, it all depends on us. If we don't get it done, it's not going to get done right. That's not right spiritually. God is sovereign even beyond our own controls. And uh, it just uh, it was kind of a gut check for me, you know, to realize that I need to trust the Lord like this too. You know, I have to do it as well. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that, you know, this serves as a strong reminder to us that we all need to get to that place in spiritual maturity where we trust you above maybe even how things get done sometimes. You know, we, I don't believe you called any of us to be lazy. Abraham wasn't lazy. He, he understood, I got to do something here. I can't just wait for you to drop a wife for my son out of heaven. But So we're going to do our part. But he was willing to entrust that responsibility to someone else, even though it was a very important thing that needed to happen. Lord, he trusted you. He trusted you above him handling things himself. And, and Lord, I believe that we all struggle in that sometimes. I think we really have a hard time trusting you above the immediate things that are happening in our lives. Father, would you help us to grow in that? Would you help us to become people that can equip others so that they will learn to trust the Lord themselves, so that they will, so that you will increase their faith as you show your faithfulness to them? Let them experience that for themselves, and then let us have tremendous joy. Let us have joy when we see you come through for them like you have for us so that we can rejoice with them on your goodness and, and that they would learn these things for the rest of their lives, Lord, and celebrate these things. And I just thank you because I know that you're faithful to do those things. Help us to just get out of the way sometimes. We just thank you, Lord. We pray that you just bless these people this week. Uh, be with all those who are still recovering from COVID. Be with those who are, you know, just going through different things in life. Uh, bring the healing that needs to come about, Lord. And we just thank you because we know that you're good to do this all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.